Hello. My name is Wes, and I am an alcoholic. Yes. And uh, from Oli and myself, uh, Bruce, congratulations on your good start. It's a good start. Anyway, I've, uh, a couple things. I, I've got some notes here, because as you can see, I wasn't born yesterday, and I'm this advanced age, I'm... I'm liable to lock up if I don't have something to remind me where, where I'm at. And I always got a little little uh, big book and I'll set that there and I've got some water here and we'll get started. I, uh, I was actually born in a little town in southern Minnesota. Uh, I was raised in a town called Montgomery and the hospital was in New Prague. That's where I was born. And, when I was 13 years old, we moved to North Dakota. I remember that well because I t was kind of crying in the car telling my mother that any place but North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, even when I was in Minnesota, I was getting into trouble. I, I, I thought I was a... I didn't really want to get in trouble, but I was just that kind of a kid. I remember the, the lumberyard burnt down one night and when I was in school, the cops came to see me. I didn't do it, but <laughs> who else would they ask? When I got to Grand Forks, uh, North Dakota, that's where we moved and uh, went to school there and started drinking, working, getting into trouble. Ran away from home when I was a senior in high school, ended up in jail. <laughs> on the west coast not very good things were happening to me that that I think happened to most alcoholics most alcoholics that I've met and myself don't know what the problem is it's like my parents, my girlfriend, my wife would tell me control your drinking and anybody that's got us how many people here are like us Friends or spouses of alcoholics. Okay. It, 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 it's like, how can they do that? What's wrong with their mind? Why can't they either quit drinking or control it? You see, that idea comes from people whose reaction to alcohol is very different than alcoholics. And I'll talk about that a little later. Things like this would happen to me. I, I was a blackout drinker and mostly drank weekends and then it got, I discovered that, you know, if you had a couple of beers in the morning that would make you feel better and things got worse. Anyway, uh, we were talking about this last night. We had a young man over at the house and we had a little fish fry while he was over there and a couple other friends and we were reminiscing on some old stories and I, I remember a friend of mine who lived in Montgomery came to North Dakota to visit. His name was Gary M. <coughs> and Vivian and I just took him out to a local, a local saloon where they had a band and stuff called The Frontier. So we're walking into The Frontier and I, Vivian walks in and Gary walks in and the bouncer grabs me and he says, I told you never to come back in here. I threw you out last night. <laughs> Big ditty. So how... How embarrassed can you be to be blacked out and not know that happened the night before? 
things like that kept happening and it, and it caused me to, to, to worry. I remember this other time I'm, I'm at work and I'm not feeling very good and a local businessman who I knew comes into the dealership where I worked and he said, Wes, who was that girl you were dancing with on the table at the Frontier last night? <laughs> and I go, I didn't know I was at the Frontier last night. <laughs> so, and then one other time a guy came to work and found me and he was kind of a rough looking guy and, and he told me that I promised him to pay him because he gave me a ride home. And I realized that these people could tell me anything, and I, how would I know if I really did or didn't? Anyway, so I, I, got a, I told my friend, and I wanna, when we go out drinking, you watch me. When I black out, you let me know. <laughs> it didn't work out so good. A lot of, a lot of those episodes, I've got to tell, tell this one. I'm in jail one night, and I, I get this one phone call. I call Vivi. I say, will you go see so-and-so and get some money and get me out of here? It was a weekend, and I was the only guy in jail. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and so on Sunday, the jailer, who I knew, let me out, and we're sitting out of the cell in the middle of the room watching a football game on TV when she comes down to get me, and I give her this sob story in the jail. She saw me sitting there watching TV, spun around, and left. <laughs> You remember that, dear? Oh, no. Oh. In 1968, I know it was 1968 because the car I was driving was a new car. It was a 1968 car. And I drove off the end of Belmont Road, which is a dead-end road. And I don't know how many country western fans there are here, but there's a, Hank Snow's got a song called Doing 90 Miles an Hour Down a Dead-End Street. That was me, and I went off the end of that street, and there was another person in the car, and I, I woke up in the hospital, and the high patrolman saying, how come you didn't report the accident? <laughs> and I, wow. I, I got so scared that time, I, I, I think I, I quit drinking for a couple of weeks. <laughs> the, the point I want to make about that is, regardless what happens to the alcoholics, as long as we're still working and we're still... I still had this idea that most alcoholics have. Someday, somehow, I'll enjoy and control my drinking. And I try every kind of method to do it, and I've known thousands of Elkies. Many, many of them have been to treatment many, many times, and they learn new tricks like how to avoid triggers and how to do this and that, and <laughs> next thing you're back in treatment. <laughs> Why is that? What is, what is it with alcoholics? Anyway, 1968, I told about that car. And you can tell what, was, what I was like, but there's a word in the big book that says, gradually things got worse. For I drank another six years. Finally, I, I, I came home one night after, a, I think I was gone for quite a few days, and Vivian decided that she might be better off if I wasn't there. <coughs> you know, can you imagine that? <laughs> so, the mind of an alcoholic, we are... I, I, I we're going between guilt and shame, and, and alcoholics have this forgetter deal that no matter... Like that, that totaled out car. 
the big book says something like, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness the pain and suffering of a week or even a month ago. It just goes away and somebody hands us a drink and we take it. So anyway, she threw me out of the house and I, and I must say, my, I was so self-centered that my biggest concern about that wasn't her or the kids. It was, what are people going to say about me when I'm living in my car? That ain't going to look good. So I, I, I decided that I was going to try to quit drinking for a while. And I ended up uh, going down to visit a brother of a friend, a drinking buddy of mine, who happened to be a counselor in a treatment center. So I went to see him. And of course, when I got there, he wasn't there. He had the day off. So a lady came out to see me. Her name was Donna S. And she sat down and talked to me for a while. And she says, well, Wes, best thing for you to do is to check into this treatment center. And of course, I explained to her that Oh, you don't know who you're talking to, do you? I got a job. I, I got a house. I mean, what the hell are you talking about? She could see that she wasn't going to make any headway with me, but she gave me a phone number for a counselor back in Grand Forks. On the way back to Grand Forks, I decided, I'm going to call Vivi, see if she'll come with me to see this counselor and to try to get back in the house, right? She'll think I'm serious about quitting drinking. So I called her and she said she would. So I'm going halfway back in, right? <laughs> so we went to see this counselor. And it was a, I think it was a Monday night. Anyway, we sat down and talked to him and he starts talking and he talked for about a half an hour. And I can honestly say I don't remember a damn word he said. <laughs> but he did say this when he was done. Wes, there's a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous tonight. Maybe you should go. Well, Vivi's sitting there. I'm trying to get back in the house, so I said, what do I do? What would an alcoholic do? Sure, I'll go. I'd be happy to go. <laughs> right? So I went to that meeting. It was a meeting, there was a table like that, and there was about 12 people there. They all talked, and then they all looked at me like, it's my turn to talk. I really don't remember what anybody said. But I do remember what I said that particular meeting. I said, look, if you people had my troubles, you'd be drinking too. They laughed just like that. And, I, and it wasn't, I didn't think it was funny. My second meeting was where my, my good fortune started. I gotta set this up a little bit. We had a, a mechanic that worked at our dealership who was probably the best mechanic in town, but he was an alcoholic. And we had fired him, matter of fact, we'd fired him twice, and he'd been to, the, to Jamestown, to the uh, state, whatever the hell you call it, the, oh, yeah. the treatment deal. And he was working for a competitive dealer, and his name was Merle, and I, I knew him well, and I walked into that, I walked into that AA meeting, and there's Merle, and he goes, hi, Wes, and I said, oh, hi, Merle, and I... I knew he was going to send me home because he knew I didn't belong in that. <laughs> but he didn't. <laughs> and, and so I, I sat down by him, and in walks a, a young man with red hair, bringing in some other guy, and his name was Ole. And he looked at me like, what's he looking at me for? And I found out 
30 years later, I was sitting in his chair. <laughs> That's why he was looking at me. But anyway, he grabbed me and he dragged me to meeting after meeting after meeting. I didn't ask him to be a sponsor or anything, he just did it. <laughs> and it's a good thing he did, because I, I wasn't all that anxious to really stay sober, because I, 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 it was just too painful. But, gosh, we were going, driving out of town, making trips to Jamestown, speaking. It got, and I was reading stuff, it got to be, he'd take me to the treatment center and I'd be talking on step 10 and shit like that. <laughs> I had, uh, I'd heard what people in meetings said about step 10. Yes, people do that, don't they? <laughs> anyway, that's what I was doing. And we'd go on 12-step calls. There was a lot of them back then, lots of them. But I could tell uh, after about a, I, I don't know, maybe close to a year or something that I was probably not going to make it on just that. I needed something more. And I remember trying to do the, get involved in doing the steps on my own. I got, I got uh, step four things from treatment centers and all different kind of crap. It really never worked out too good for me. And, and there was a lot of people then and now that I see are like are in and out, in and out, in and out. Maybe you don't notice that, but right? People are in and out, in and out? Here's what happened one night at a meeting in, in Grand Forks. So they, they, they had a monthly chip meeting where you get chips like you did tonight. You did it once a month. And the guy goes, oh, 30-day uh, chips. And then, oh, we're out of 30-day chips. And the guy in the back row says, oh, that's all right. I'll go home and get some. I got a drawer full of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking, evidently this don't always just work. <laughs> <laughs> we had a fall banquet in Grand Forks, and we had a speaker there from Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is 150 miles straight north of where we live in North Dakota. His name was George R., and uh, he gave a nice talk, and he, he talked about the group that he went to in Winnipeg. The name of the group was called the Golden Slippers. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't talking about footwear, he was talking about people that were in and out, in and out, and they were been around a while. Golden slippers. So I was so enthralled with that that I went up to Winnipeg, they, they met on Sundays, to watch how they ran those meetings, and the, the guy that was running the meetings was a guy by the name of Tom Grafton, who's now deceased. And he gave me the outline of their big book study, and I watched what they did. And it was very interesting what they did. And they, and they said, people that, they take people into this big book study, when pigeons and sponsors, and when they come to a step, they do it. They follow the directions in the book exactly. They don't talk about their favorite slip, they don't talk about nothing, but follow the directions in the book, and then they get well. Imagine that. Because it's rarely we've seen a person fail or thoroughly follow our path. But you know what I see now? Rarely have I seen a person thoroughly follow our path. <laughs> anyway, in 1977 then, uh, I was on the road a lot. And after I got that, that uh, big book outline from the group in Winnipeg, Ole and I started doing big book study groups. We'd gather up anywhere from 10 to 20 people and go through the book and 
we learned a lot about the, about what was in that book. You'd be surprised what's in there when you read it with somebody out loud, because that's how, how we had to do it. You read it out loud, and you'd read it with your eyes and hear it being read. So, anyway, we, we actually thought we were doing, I thought we were, you know, it's about as smart as we could get. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, I got one of those hang-ups, maybe some of you got it too. When I learn something, in a little while, I think I always knew it. <laughs> and I also think that you should know it too. <laughs> if you don't, you're a dumb shit, right? <laughs> I don't know if that affects any of you, but it, it, it did me a lot. Still does. So in 1977, I'm in Rockford, Illinois. I'm on the road, and I went to an AA meeting. There's a poster on the wall for a, advertising a three-day big book retreat headlined by a, a guy by the name of Clarence Snyder. Now, Clarence Snyder, I didn't know this then, but and it, it said on the, on the flyer that Clarence Snyder was the guy that started AA. And I went home and I told Ole, and, and he looked at me like I had four heads. And that's a, that's a whole story in, in itself. But he, he started AA in, Cooks, in Cleveland, away from the Oxford Group. In, in, in 1939. Clarence's sponsor was Dr. Bob. He sobered up in 1938. So Vivian, Sharon, Ole, and I got in a van and we went to this thing in Rockford, Illinois and listened to Clarence tell us what all about this big book. I had this burning question because I'm, I'm thinking, how long do people have to be in AA before we take them through the steps? Because some of the people we took through the Big Book study didn't stay. And they didn't make it. So what, what's with that? It couldn't have been our great ideas, right? So I asked Clarence that question. I said, Clarence, how long do these people have to be in AA before we try to take them through the steps? And he looked at me like I had two heads. He said, well, when do they want to get well? Because if they don't want to get well, don't take them through the steps. Right? And if you're going to want to get well, you've got to know you're sick. Most of us alcoholics don't know we're sick. We think we can try harder or that somebody else's fault or circumstances are causing it, right? We learned a lot from Clarence. I'll maybe I'll have some more to talk about that later. One of the things we learned early on in, in, in the big book studies is we started from the beginning, we read the doctor's opinion, and that's where I found out what was really wrong with me and what was wrong with alcoholics. I didn't know it before then. Dr. Silkworth, who was the doctor at the treatment center that Bill Wilson went to, and Bill Wilson is one of the co-founders of AA, had this theory or idea at the time that proved to be true that it goes like this. Alcohol, alcoholics have a sensitivity or an allergy to alcohol that when we drink alcohol, it develops what he called a phenomenon of craving and we want more and more and more. And we don't know how much we're going to drink or when we're going to stop, for sure, really, do we? Non-alcoholics don't understand that at all. You've seen them. You've seen them. They'll come into a bar, order a 
a drink or a glass of beer and leave half of it there and just walk out of there like nothing happened. <laughs> that doesn't happen to real alcoholics. The phenomenon of craving sets in and it overcomes any promise or anything we've made. I remember we, after Vivian and I were married in 1965. Good? She called me one day and said, Are you coming home for supper? I'm tired of throwing out supper and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm getting kind of mad. And I said, Of course I will be. It was like almost 5.30. I'll be home at 6. And when I told her that, I absolutely, positively meant it. Now, I don't know how many alcoholics re remember things, the promises they made like that. Well, you know, of course, what happens. I stopped for a couple beers before I went home, right? I got home about a week later, I think. <laughs> but still, as alcoholics, I didn't know that I had that allergy and that obsession that says... Well, this time it will be different, or I'm too mad to care, or whatever. So Bill Wilson, when he was in treatment, learned that. He learned about the allergy and the obsession. He learned what an alcoholic was, which he didn't, he didn't know. Between his second and third treatment, he's still back drunk at home, right? Ebby Thatcher, his old high school drinking buddy, comes to see him, and, and I, I won't go into that, but he ends up with a uh, sudden spiritual experience, goes back to see uh, doc, the, Dr. Silkworth, and one of the things he learned from Ebby and from the Oxford Group people was that you needed to try to help other people, right? We still try to do that. <laughs> I've been drinking right now. <laughs> so anyway, Bill Wilson had this sudden spiritual experience, which I don't see that happen. I don't know if you've seen any, but I haven't seen any. Most of them are gradual, and they come by hard work going through the big book, putting these steps in your life, and you get happy, joyous, and free. Anyway, Bill Wilson asked Dr. Silkworth if he could help out with some of these rummies in the hospital. And Dr. Silkworth said, sure. So Bill was trying to work with some of these rummies, and I think it lasted almost six months, and of course he was successful in helping no one. <laughs> Why is that? Because he didn't know how to help rummies. Because he was trying to give them the solution that he got. He was saying, find God now. Well, I don't know about you guys, but if somebody told me that when I'm still drinking, and tell them, well, my wish is going to last a lot longer than your preaching, right? <laughs> so that was a solution, but people don't want a solution to a problem they don't know they got. Fortunately for us, Dr. Silkworth finally told Bill Wilson this. And, and, and some of the books I, I read are like uh, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers and all those stories. And, and anyway... Here's what Dr. Silkworth told Bill Wilson. I got it written down so I don't get it wrong. He says, you are preaching at these fellows, Bill. Turn your strategy around. 
his, the strategy he was using was, was find God now strategy, right? And no, that wasn't working. Give your new contacts the medical business hard. Describe the obsession that condemns men to drink and the physical sensibility or allergy of the body to alcohol that makes this type go mad or die if they keep on drinking. He told them to tell them the problem first. Ole and I started really emphasizing that and doing it. We even used the, what Ole called the acid test on page 31 in the book. If you get an alky, you ain't sure if he's an alcoholic or not, even after you hear all this stuff. The book says, try some controlled drinking. Try it more than once. So we tell them, take three of your favorite drinks every night. No more, no less. Try for a month. <laughs> um, I didn't have to try that because I knew I couldn't do that. I could go for a month or maybe even two without any booze. But once I had some, that phenomenal craving started, and I could not stop it. That's what a real alcoholic is. And most people that come to AA or treatment or anything don't know that. And most of what we tell them is to what? Go to 90 meetings in 90 days, avoid triggers, all that shit. That's good. But pretty soon you've got to figure out what the problem is and get into a real solution. So, right after that, Bill Wilson goes to Akron on a business deal. The business deal flops. He's in this hotel. Maybe you've heard this story. He's walking up and down in the hotel. There's the bar room and all nervous. And <coughs> I, I better find another alcoholic to talk to because I'm, I'm getting weak, weak here, right? So anyway, he gets a hold of Henrietta Cyberling and a bunch of ministers. and She hooks him up with Dr. Bob Smith, the other co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, interesting factor here that most of us, I didn't know this, but I do now. Dr. Bob was already going to the Oxford Group meetings for two and a half years, staying drunk. He was in the solution, but he didn't know the problem. If you read the, the very first part of the book, in the doctor's opinion, Bill Wilson says, we must believe that we're bodily and mentally different than non-alcoholics. That's what we got to get these people to understand. If you read the material on step 12, it describes that same thing. So, Bill meets Dr. Bob and kind of the, the rest is history. There's a good point here. <clears throat> Dr. Bob then stayed sober. Bill Wilson stayed in Akron for a few months and lived with, with Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob went to some doctor's convention, got drunk, came back. But here's the difference. After Bill had told him what the problem was, the physical sensitivity and the, and the obsession of the mind, he realized that was true. That's why he drank even after he knew it. And now he could apply using a higher power in these, in these steps. <clears throat> I, I finally went through the same sort of, sort of logic and reasoning as I'm doing the steps. Because I found out, I tried to do the steps when, in our early big, big books, but I didn't really know it was in the steps until I'm going through the book with somebody else trying to give it to them. And 
the more we did it, the more we learned, and the more fun it is. And, and, the, and the higher our success was. Can you believe, really? Because they, they used to say, well, don't worry about it. At least you stayed sober. <laughs> the idea is to try to help the other guy stay sober. So if we do it right, we've got a lot better chance. Huh? I'm not saying we're taking credit for it. But the person has a lot better chance to get well if he understands what his problem is. So when it came to step two, and, and I had heard a lot of stuff in meetings, and after I got in the big book, I found out step two is really simple. I don't have to have any overwhelming God-conscious deal like Bill Wilson did. What does it say? Here's what it says. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, there's a power greater than me? If I can, if I can say that, I've done step two. That's it. I just got to be willing to believe I ain't the center of the universe. I got to tell you this story. I'm at a treatment center in in, in uh, Park Rapids. Yeah. It's a town not too far from us. And I go there to meetings because they have a meeting on Saturday night, and they usually have a speaker, and half the time the speaker don't show up, so they have me talk. <laughs> so I, I always ask the guys in treatment there, I said, what step? Well, first question is, how many people are here for the first time? Hardly no hands go up. Ooh, that's good. And then he said, well, what step are you on? And this one young man goes, well, I'm kind of stuck on step two. I said, really? You, 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 you know you're an alcoholic and went through all that? Yeah. Do you think you're the center of the universe? He said, no. I said, well, you're done with step two. Let's go on. <laughs> I don't know. What, what? Now, we read... If you, this is so important that if you ever get a chance to read a copy of the original manuscript, when they, when they wrote the big book, and it's a good thing they wrote it when they did, there was a less than 100 people that sobered up using this method. They got together and wrote the book. Wilson wrote it and he sent it to everybody, and everybody redlined it and said, no, I don't like this, I don't like that. And they, they got it all done. They all agreed that this is absolutely the way to go about doing this. Well, in, in the thing that we... We read every meeting how it works. So it's like on page 58, 59, the steps, right? All the stuff before that is steps one and two. That's why they didn't put the steps at the beginning of the book, because people go, oh, I ain't going to do that. The first part of the book is for people to decide if they're alcoholic or not. Okay. It says here are the steps we took, and then it goes, at the very end it says, our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, is this familiar? Have we heard this before? <laughs> this, what they're talking about is the material in the book preceding this. The chapters of the agnostic is where step two is. And our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. ABC. And ABC is a review of steps one and two. That we're alcoholic, could not manage our own lives, and no human power could have, and God couldn't win if he were sought. In the, in, the original, in the original manuscript, before they softened it up, this, this gives you the idea of where they were coming from. They still had words similar to ABC, but right after ABC in the current book, it says, being convinced we're at step three. That's the next line. Being convinced of what? Of ABC, that I'm an alcoholic and I can't fix it myself, right? 
being convinced of that, now we can go on. If you're not convinced of that, don't waste your time going on. Because it, it, it probably ain't going to work, right? Here's what the, the original manuscript said. If you are not convinced, it doesn't say being convinced, it says if you are not convinced of these vital issues, A, B, C, you have to reread the book to this point or else throw it away. <laughs> well, that's pretty plain, isn't it? You get your pigeons and your new rummies to understand that they're alcoholic or not. Even if you've got to give them the, if they've got to take the acid test on their own. Better to have a hangover than to not ever get well. Or be in and out, in and out, and have a drawer full of 30-day chips. <laughs> step three is simply the best. That's step three. I find out how self-centered I am, and I'm going to decide to try to use this higher power, whatever, whatever I pick, right? It's just a decision step. Made a decision. I'm going to try this power out. That's what I did. Step four. Step four, people are always worried about step four, but all it's an inventory of what the big book says. What's blocking me from using this power so I can get well? They even use the words blocking. Self-centeredness is blocking me from using this higher power. I think a spiritual awakening is the realization that I can't, as an alcoholic, run my life on self-will. i got to have new, a new management. Help. HP, I like to call it. A lot of people don't like the word God, so I use HP. Whatever they want. <coughs> Clarence talked about this. On page 64 it says, Being convinced that self, manifested in various ways, was what had defeated it, defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Common manifestations of self-centeredness are what? Resentment, fear, anger, all those things. They're all cousins of the same thing, self-centeredness. And the book goes on to say, Resentment's the worst. How do they know that? How did they move me on my list? They did. <coughs> so resentments are so bad we have to make a list of them, right? I made a list of them. The number one guy on my list after I did all that resentment thing and I found out how stupid most of them were, I still resented that son of a bitch. But it didn't work. That, that one did. And I think that probably happens to a lot of people. But most of the resentments were pretty stupid and I got over them. The step three prayer is one that I say to myself every day, every morning, mentally, many times a day. Step seven prayer, same thing. And, and listen, to, listen to the step seven prayer. It says, My Creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defective character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out here, from here to do your bidding. Steps eight and nine are the steps then that, in, in my experience, and I think in Ole's experience, that cause the most trouble to people in the program. I don't know where they get some of the ideas that you do. Because for sure it isn't running around telling everybody you're sorry, because they already know you're sorry. You've got to tell them that. The book is pretty specific about that, and, and it... It, it, it says this, page 76, it says, Now we go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. If 
I stole your tires, I'm going to have to pay you back for them. And I'm going to have to fess up that I did it. If I, if I slept with my neighbor's old lady, I'm not going to go tell him that, am I? <laughs> that happens in treatment centers. <laughs> I don't, I've, I've heard <laughs> people are not married anymore because what the hell, how did, who did that help? Uh, what damage did that refer? <laughs> so, we always make our pigeons now say, you're going to make these amends, so let me see your amends list, you tell me who it is, why you think you need to make it, and what you're going to do about it. Invariably, there's some of them on there say, why would you want to do that? Is that going to help that person? No, but I got uh, this terrible guilt. I said, well, we should have got rid of it in step five. That's where that belongs, right? Steps eight and nine are designed to help people you've hurt, not hurt them more. My example on step eight and nine, Sharon always wants me to use that example. I had a, the book calls it a bitterly hated business writer. And I figured he did me way more wrong than I ever did him. Well, he was trying to put to, he lived in a different town. He was trying to put together some property to, to build a deal on, and there was a piece right in the middle. I went down there and bought it. <laughs> See, I thought it was funny too. Justified reasons for that. So I'm going through all this work and I'm reading that big book and it says, it don't matter what that person did to you. We're here to clean up our side of the street. And resentments are stupid. So I did exactly what I said. I remember I had, I had my book in my lap as I was driving down the car to make sure I did the right thing. I got to his office and his secretary was, you know, should she call the cops? Or, <laughs> So I did exactly what the book says. It says, tell them why you're there. Tell them this. I have to see you and make amends for if I don't, I may not get over my drinking. So I'm admitting to the guy that I resent that I've got a drinking problem. Wow. So I said, you know that property that in the middle there? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rele release my rights on it and let you, let you buy it and put your project together. I can tell you this. I'm, I was halfway back home and I, you know what I realized? I didn't have any resentment toward him anymore. It was gone. Now, could I do that on my own? Like, say, I'm not supposed to be resentful? <coughs> That's what when people say. I'm not working on my resentment. So I'm thinking, don't work on your resentments. Ask HP to help you or do something about it. The self can't do it. <coughs> the crux of the program then is 10, 11, and 12. Clarence told us this. When, you, when you've done the first nine steps, you've done them. They all say, do this, do that, right? When you do them, you've done them. But what is 10, 11, and 12? What's the first word in 10? Continued. It must continue for our lifetime. So now I can live this program on 10, 11, and 12. Read 84 to 88 every day for every purpose. I gotta tell you this. Oli's license plate on his pickup in North Dakota 
So it's the eagle plate. It says, it says 84 to 88. That's page 84 to 88. On page 77, during the material on steps 8 and 9, and 8 and 9 are together in the book, it says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to our higher power, our new manager, and the people about us. That's our real purpose. That's why we did step eight and nine. Us, and, and the material on, on step 10 and 11 is to, is to grow and maintain what we've already done in the first nine steps. On page 84 it says, our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. That's, what, that's exactly what it says for step 10. So most people I, I, I run into, they're just like, I'm going to watch for that. And, oh, I'm, I'm getting mad. I bet I shouldn't do that. Well. Maybe that can work if you've done it enough, but the next line after that says, when these crop up, these four things, fear and all that, what does it say? We ask HP to remove them. So if I'm not feeling good or I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling something I don't want to feel, I say, HP, remove that from me. I can't be very helpful and effective. And if I'm helpful and effective, I'm happy. If I'm resentful, am I happy? No. That's the opposite of happy, isn't it? And my goal in life is to be happy. Why the hell do I want to be resentful? But sometimes I can't help it. Self takes over. I gotta, I gotta get, I gotta get some help from my new manager. When uh, Bill Wilson worked with Dr. Bob. Bill Wilson worked with Dr. Bob because he needed to work, talk to another alcoholic to even save himself. And, and so they asked Dr. Bob later on, what did Bill say to you that was any different than anything? Hell, he'd been going to these Oxford group meetings for two and a half years, and, and your wife and everybody else have been telling you, quit making do this and that, right? What did Bill Wilson say that was any different? Well, he said, undoubtedly what he told me about what, what alcoholism really was, was very helpful. But even more than that, the guy that was telling me that was a real alcoholic himself. He wasn't some professor or some idiot. He'd been there, right? So, one of the big things we've learned in AA is what? Another alcoholic can help another alcoholic if he's got the right message. Clarence told me, I said, we really like big books and we really like helping people. And he said, if you're going to help people, make sure you do it right. In the material on page uh, 89 where they talk about working with others, it's very specific on how to work with others, especially the first five pages. Quote, Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of mind and body which accompany it. 
These new, these new people don't know that they're sick. That they, you know, how, how could they? I didn't know it. I think a lot of people here don't know it. I mean, in the AA. One of my favorite stories, again, just, just like Uncle Bob, or Dr. Bob, it's, it's in a story about an accountant named Fred. You, and, and, and it's in the first part of the book. It's probably page 30 or something like that. But an accountant named Fred. Well, Fred ends up in a hospital for a case of jitters, he thinks. And these AA guys come in there and say, Hi, Fred. <laughs> they told them what they knew of alcoholism and the causes of it and the solution. And what did Fred do? Wow, he said, I didn't know that. But you know what? I'm not as bad as you fellows, and thanks for telling me, because now that I know that, I'm not going to pick up another drink ever. So this knowledge that I'm talking about, the knowledge of what's wrong with us, is necessary that we know that. But it's insufficient to keep you sober long term. Because what happened to Fred about a year later? They're back in the hospital. What happened to Fred? He said, well, I was getting along fine. I thought, you know, I was making too big of a deal out of this thing. I really appreciate what you guys told me. But I was at a place one night, and it didn't even enter my mind. I, I decided a couple cocktails after dinner would be fine. And so I had a couple, and next morning I had some more. Boom, here I am back in the hospital. You guys were right. I needed to know what was wrong, but just knowing what's wrong is insufficient to keep you sober. We've got to have a higher power help us. So now he was able to accept the solution and so forth. I think that, that I'm pretty much done, but I want to say this. Clarence told me, th this might be a kind of a stretch, but he said, he said this. I'll say it again. If you're going to work with these Elkies, do it right. He said, you may be dealing with their very soul. That's what he said. Clarence said this. I only heard him say it too. <laughs> anyway, I want to say this. My name is Wes, and at least part of the time, I'm under new management. Thank you. <laughs>